The reading is from Exodus chapter 14, from verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry land. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, but I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right Thanks, and on their left. Well, I want to begin tonight with a question, and the question is this. What is the most daring thing that you have ever done. The most daring thing that you have ever done. Just think about your life. You can go at whatever level you are comfortable to share with, but just turn to the person next to you and tell them, if it's legal, what is the most daring thing that you have ever done? Where you go. I wish that I could hear some of the things that you are saying. Um, what was fascinating to see was the number of people who sat there and thought, I don't think I've ever done a daring thing in my life. And then the other reaction was people who just rocked their heads back with laughter at what had just been said to them, and they couldn't quite believe what the person had just said to them. Now, daring things will be different for different ones of us. We will all have different levels of experience. But I wonder if you can think back, if you did something that to you was daring, it might not be daring for the other person that you've just told, but and by comparison, they just thought your thing was pretty tame. But to you, it was daring. How did it feel? What were the emotions that went through your mind and through your heart and through your body when you had to do that particular thing was, that was risky? Perhaps you felt quite vulnerable. Perhaps the old heart was going quite fast. Maybe it was, uh, I don't know, asking somebody out on a date. Maybe it was uh, going for a job interview. Maybe it was going somewhere that you'd never been before or doing something that you had never done. But try and remember how you felt when you were about to do that thing that to you was risky and daring. 
I associate, obviously, this time of year with summer holidays. And for many, many years, we used to go up to uh, Abernethy Trust, uh, just outside Aviemore in Nethy Bridge, uh, where often I'd been asked to speak at family weeks. And it was a great time to take the family away. We got a free holiday, and all I had to do was give a 20-minute talk every day. I was not on holiday, but the rest of the family were. And we got to try out all sorts of different things. We did gorge walking. We did rock climbing. We did abs sailing, we did coast steering, uh, mountain biking, there were a whole range of different things. Uh, and my family, were I think Josh, our eldest, would have been about uh, six when we first went, and Iona, uh, she was about three when we first went, and they tried all sorts of things that we would never have normally done in a normal sort of everyday uh, week. And so, you know, I don't go mountain biking every week and every day. We, we don't go coast steering. I have to confess that I never went coast steering during all the time that we used to go up to Abernethy. But uh, the, perhaps the most risky thing um, is, is going on a zip wire. I don't know if you've ever been on a zip wire. You have to be careful going on a zip wire because you can look really stupid uh, going on a zip wire. Uh, if you remember that picture of Boris Johnson when he went on the zip wire and he looked really daft as he got stuck on the zip wire waving the flags. Um, so you've got to be really careful. But uh, uh, well, perhaps the most daring thing that I've ever done was when two friends from this church asked me to go skiing with them. They knew that I had never skied in my life. Some of you I know love skiing. I watch you on social media and wonder at the way in which you go on skiing holidays two, three, four times a year. And uh, you love skiing. Well, I, I just hadn't got into it. And uh, these two friends who were part of this church said, we will take you to Aviemore and we'll give you free accommodation and free meals and free ski instruction because one of them was a Basie qualified ski instructor. And so when we went to Aviemore on the Friday night, had a nice meal on the Friday night, I thought it's going to be lovely. And the snow was apparently amazing on the left. It was the, the best snow that they'd had for years. And the next morning, they got up ridiculously early, I thought, uh, on a Saturday morning. It was about six. And we were on the, the bottom of the ski slopes at about, I don't know, half seven, eight o'clock. And for the next three hours, we spent time on the nursery slopes. And we spent time going up and down, and they would teach me how to do this thing, and, and then that thing, and then that thing, and then that thing. It looks better with skis. But I went up and down, and up and down, and up and down the nursery slopes for three hours. After three hours, remember that, three hours, they said, okay, Dave, we're going to the top. So we got on the ski lift, and they put me in the middle between the two of them, and up we went, up the ski lift, and it went higher and higher, and higher, and higher, and higher. And my heart started to beat faster and faster and faster and faster. And then we got to the top of the ski lift, and I'd never appreciated that actually with, with sports like skiing and rock climbing, most of the challenge actually isn't physical. Talking to some people who do it uh, more than me, they said actually the challenge is 80-85% mental. And when we got off the ski lift and got to the top where you skied across to then come down, as soon as we got off the ski lift, I was gone. My legs were gone and my brain was gone. And I just stood there and thought, how the heck am I going to get down? Because it was just sort of sheer drop. 
And I could see people going down. I could see three-year-olds going down, and they were whizzing down. And I'm thinking, there is no way that I'm going to go down on this slope. It never occurred to me. It never really was an option that behind me was a ski lift that I could have got back on and gone down very safely. But I thought, no, I can't lose face. So we started down. Then there was a long pause. None of this, it was just, as I was impaled on a snow fence. And then, again, impaled on another snow fence. I was being passed by three-year-olds. They were gliding past me with ease. My friends thought this was hilarious and started videoing me. They videoed all the times that I went into the snow fences. It took us two hours to get down from the top to the bottom. When eventually we got down to the bottom, I said, guys, that's it. I'm done for the day. You're really good skiers. It's the best snow for years. You go back up and have a great time. I was sat in the cafe at the Lecht, and in came the instructors from Abernethy Outdoor Center, superheroes, as they sort of walked in in their ski gear. And they said, oh, hi, Dave. What are you doing here? And I explained, and I said, well, my two friends well, ex-friends, they've just spent three hours teaching me how to ski, and then they've taken me to the top. And these guys who were professionals, they said, three hours? We take people up there after three days, not three hours. And I said, well, they took me up there after three hours. And they said, will you ever ski again? I said, I don't think I can walk again. Never mind ski again. And we, we did eventually make it home and the next day I managed it and it was absolutely fine but I will never forget the emotion standing at the top of that ski slope and thinking this is the most daring thing that I have ever done but there came that moment when I had to commit there came that moment when I had to push off from the top of the ski slope when I had to push off and immediately go into that snow fence that first time. There came that moment when that had to happen. And when God calls you to do something that might seem risky and might seem daring, there comes that moment, and that's what we're looking at tonight in Exodus chapter 14, when you have to commit. Somebody once said that a vision without a plan is just an hallucination. Somebody else said a vision without a plan is just a dream. A plan without a vision is just drudgery. Somebody else said a vision without action is just a dream, and action without vision is a nightmare. Or most sharply, somebody said a goal without a plan is just a wish. You see, most of us, if we were to ask you at the door and to say to you, would you like to grow as a Christian this week? Would you like to be closer to Jesus in seven days' time? Most of us, if we're Christ followers, would say yes. But if we haven't got a plan to enable that to happen, it's not going to just happen, as it were, by accident. We actually have to think it through and do something in order that we might become more like Jesus. 
And behind every great aspiration or every great achievement or any great endeavor, there comes a moment when, in the words of Nike's strapline, you have to just do it. Nike have sold loads of trainers and all sorts of sports equipment with this strapline where they just encourage people, just do it. Moses was at that moment in his life when he had to just do it. It's perhaps one of the most famous incidents in the Bible, the parting of the Red Sea, where God brings the people of Israel to the edge of the Red Sea and asks Moses to lead them through the waters. And this was Moses' time. If you know anything about the life of Moses, you know that he'd been prepared by God. He'd been cared for by God. Years ago, when he was an infant, in the infanticide, when Pharaoh had wiped out all the firstborn, somehow God had arranged for Moses to be spared. He'd been looked after by God, as God had arranged it for Moses to be actually brought up by his own mother. He'd been schooled by God as Moses had received the greatest education and preparation in the ancient world by being brought up as a prince in Pharaoh's court. He'd be refined by God as he'd been angry when he saw an Egyptian whipping a Hebrew and had murdered the Egyptian and then fled. He'd been called by God when Moses was out tending the sheep one day in Midian and had seen a bush that was on fire, but wasn't burning. It's described as Moses and the burning bush. The whole point of the story is actually the fact that the bush wasn't burning. It was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed by the fire. And that was what attracted and intrigued Moses. And then Moses had been reassured by God as he'd sought to think up every and any excuse as to why he, Moses, was disqualified to lead the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. Moses, by the time that we find in Exodus chapter 14, has already experienced so much of God. He's over 80 years of age, but he's experienced and seen so many things that God has done. The confrontations with Pharaoh and his magicians, the pleading with his own people to convince them to follow God and him out of Egypt, the plagues and the terrible effects on the people, the Passover and the night of God's infanticide, the escape from Egypt, and then being led by God as God had sent a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then if you read the first half, the verses before those verses in chapter 14 of Exodus that Roger read for us uh, from chapter verse uh, 1 through to 7, where God had almost caused seemingly the people of Israel to retrace their steps to the point now where there's nowhere else they can go, where they have Egyptian forts to the north of them, a barren desert to the south of them, and the best army in the world, the Egyptian army, thundering towards them from the west. The only option that they have is to go east. But that's where the Red Sea is. They've not got their backs against the wall, they've got their backs against the water. 
and they don't know what to do next. And then had come this strange command from God via Moses. God says to them, do not be afraid. Stand firm. The Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And so they'd stopped and were still before the Lord. And Moses must have thought, job done. Job done over to God. I've led the people this far. Now God's told us to be still. God's promised to fight for us. We're never going to see the Egyptians again that we're seeing now. It's going to be okay, and I don't have to do anything. I wonder what God's going to do. Will it be more angels of death? Will it be more plagues of frogs and floods and fire and all sorts of stuff? But I wonder what miracles God is now going to do as we wait. And then had come the astounding voice of God again in verse 15, where we pick up tonight's passage, where the voice of God comes not to the people, but the voice of God comes to Moses. And God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. And Moses must have sat there and thought, what? I've done what you asked. I've brought them here. And here we are waiting upon you. And we're still. And we're quiet. And we're waiting for you to do your stuff. Why are you now calling me out? Why are you choosing to involve me? And here's the final twist. Because God says to Moses, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. You see, in the same way that it was a bush that wasn't burning, even though it was full of fire that attracted Moses, some people have speculated that what we have here actually isn't God parting the Red Sea. But what happens next is Moses parting the Red Sea. Yes, God does it, but he does it in response to Moses' obedience. Sometimes it's very easy, I don't know about you, to feel spiritual in church during a time of worship during a church service, maybe in your connect group if you're a member of one, maybe when you go to something like Soul Survivor or Magnitude or Keswick or New Wine or perhaps you used to go to clan gathering. And in those moments when you're surrounded by hundreds or thousands of other Christians, it's really easy to feel spiritual. You sing the songs, you pray the prayers, you feel the feels, but then reality hits. Monday to Saturday, and God asks you to do something, to live a life that's different, to live a life that's distinctive. Maybe God calls you to do something that is risky and daring, that leaves you feeling vulnerable and exposed, where your heart 
starts to beat faster, you start to sweat, even in Scotland in the summer, and you start to get a, a queasy feeling in your stomach because you have this sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach that you know exactly what God wants you to do, but it's going to be costly, and it's going to be risky, and it's going to be daring. It might be at school or at college. It might be in your workplace or in your business. It might be in a relationship or in your family life. But God calls you to do something different and distinctive and daring. And you get the sense that he's not going to act until you have acted first. Until you have stepped out in faith and done the very thing that you have sung or prayed or felt. Many people at that point are like the people of Israel in Exodus 14. They want to simply be still and know that God is God. Now, sometimes that's absolutely appropriate. It's a biblical, scriptural command at times to be still and know that He is God and He will be exalted amongst the nations. But sometimes, being still before God can also be used as an excuse for inactivity and inaction and actually a refusal to do the very thing that God is calling you to do. It sounds very spiritual. I'm just waiting for God to do something. When God all the time is whispering in your ear, just move. Do something now. And the question is, will you be brave? Will you take that step of faith, even though you seem exposed and vulnerable, even though the question is, will you trust God in that moment? I'll never forget the evening, nearly <clears throat> 20 years ago now, when we were thinking about uh, doing this building project uh, that we ended up doing in this place. Uh, putting back these balconies in and taking out um, the existing pews, that was a picture of how it used to look uh, before 2006. It was quite dark, um, had tiles down the middle of the floor, had a big rude screen, there was a big screen there, and uh, it was quite gloomy. That's on a summer's evening, that photograph has been taken. The, the color schemes of the wall were pink and gray. Who chose that? Well, it turns out it was the Victorians. And uh, when the church was being refurbished in the early 1980s, um, Historic Scotland said, we'll give you the money for the paint if you keep the color scheme. And so we ended up with um, gray uh, walls with black fleur-de-lis and pink uh, above the sort of lower half of the stained glass window. It was beautiful. It wasn't. It was dreadful. It looked absolutely horrendous. And we came to this stage after four or five years of realizing that, uh, of thinking and planning and praying and talking, that we had to do something for the building, that the building was restricting who we wanted to be as a church. And so we started to plan and move and pray towards doing this building project that in the end we called Project 21 and ended up uh, taking two and a half years when we were out of this building. 
But there was a moment in the lead-up when we, we asked various people who'd done building projects to come and speak because we needed reassurance that it was okay to do this and you, you would event, eventually get to the other side and come out the other end. And on one particular occasion, we asked somebody to come and speak for a weekend and he asked if on the Saturday night we could have a meal with the leadership of the church. In, in Peace and Jesus, there's something called the vestry. It's like the sort of board or elders or deacons or, or, or presbytery or whatever denomination you belong to, perhaps, if it's not the Episcopal church. But there were about 30 people in this house, and we were having a meal together. It was uh, the leadership of the church and their spouses. And uh, he asked us to have a few words at the end of the meal this particular guest speaker. And he said, I want to speak for about five minutes tonight on when Moses crossed the Red Sea. And he said, I want to remember one thing, that the water didn't part until Moses got his feet wet. And then he looked at the 30 of us in this room members of the vestry, members of staff and clergy and their spouses, and he said, you as leaders need to get your feet wet. This building project, if it's of God, will not happen unless you lead and unless you give. And you have to give first as an example to the rest of the church, because if you don't lead, the people won't follow. Remember driving home that night and getting into bed with Kathy, because she's my wife, and lying there with Kathy, and we didn't say a word. And we just lay there, and we were both looking at the ceiling. And then eventually, one of us, I can't remember who it was, said this really spiritual phrase. Oh, stink. And we said, this, this, if this is going to happen, we're going to have to give, aren't we? And we're going to have to get our feet wet. And we're going to have to really give, perhaps in a way that we've never given financially before. And we're going to have to take the lead. And we said, yes. And I'll never forget coming to church the next morning and having conversations with people who'd been there the previous night. And one by one and couple by couple, them coming to me and saying, Dave, we went home tonight and we lay in bed and one of us said, oh, stink, or words equivalent. And we realized that we're going to have to give and we're going to have to get our feet wet. And if we don't lead, the people can't follow. And if we don't give, then this thing isn't going to happen. But we believe this is of God, and therefore we're going to have to start to give. And over the next few weeks, the vestry went away, and they prayed together. And we prayed as a, as a leadership. And when it came to the, the, the gift night that the vestry had, which was about a month before the church pledge day, the vestry between them pledged a million pounds. And that was us getting our feet wet. And it felt very costly and very sacrificial and very risky and very vulnerable and very exposing. And for lots of us, it meant that 
for the next few years, there were no overseas holidays. There were no skiing holidays, even if we wanted to go on them, and I did not want to go on a skiing holiday ever again. But it meant that we could say to the church with integrity, we want you to give because we've given. But it was this principle that was the same in Exodus 14, that God was only going to do something, and over the next few years, we learned as a church to give in ways that we'd never given before, and, and we gave seven million pounds over the next few years. It was just amazing. And if we'd known it cost that much at the start, we would never have done it. But the church learned to give and learned more about God and learned more about ourselves because the leadership in the church got our feet wet. And God worked a miracle in response to our obedience, just as he did on the banks of the Red Sea. When Moses stepped into the water and struck the water with his staff, and the waters parted. And somebody has said, well, what's in your hand? Whatever is in your hand is what God will take and use. And God had used that stick, that staff, as a sign to Moses with the plagues and his confrontations with Pharaoh. It had been this simple wooden staff that God had used to signify to Moses that he was, he was with him. And God wants to take whatever is in your hand, if you will give it over to him, and it might seem to you and other people very ordinary. It might seem a job. It might seem a business. It might seem a relationship. It might be an ambition. It might be a hope. It might be a dream. But if you're willing to give it over to God, that he might use it, and if you're willing to take that first step and get your feet wet, in that area, that one thing that you know tonight, God is calling you to do. Just get the sense this evening that for some people, you know very clearly tonight that there is one thing that God is calling you to do. And it's risky, and it's daring, and maybe to other people it doesn't seem to make much sense. But even as I'm speaking, your heart is starting to beat a little faster. And you know that that is the Spirit of God convicting you just now and telling you, because He loves you, that He wants you to do what He's calling you to do. He won't force you to do it. That's not the way that God operates. He's a God of love. He's a God of freedom. And He gives us choice free will. Because love that's forced isn't love. Love is given freely and willingly 
and unconditionally. And maybe tonight there are people, and you know who you are, that you're being called by God to do something, to take a risk, to step out in faith, and to get your feet wet. And the question for you and the question for me is will you make that first move, that first act, that first response, not to earn God's love, not to earn God's approval. He loves you, full stop. He won't love you more whether you do it or don't. But knowing and confident in the knowledge that God loves you and wants the best for you, even though it feels risky, even though it feels a bit vulnerable, are you willing to make that step and to get your feet wet and then see God do something miraculous in your life? Let's pray together. And I want us just to be quiet. Because I get the sense that for some people this evening, this is a holy moment and is a bit of a crunch point for some people. Maybe for some people tonight, it's the realization that you don't actually know God. And you want to become a follower of Jesus Christ tonight. You want to commit your life to Jesus. You want, maybe for the first time, to admit, to confess your need of him. You know about him or you know about Jesus, but you've never actually committed your life to God. And so I just invite you, where you are, where you're sitting, just to quietly pray a prayer where you say, God, I know I need forgiveness. I know I've done things that are wrong. But I thank you for Jesus and what he did on the cross. That on the cross, he died to take away my sin that I might be forgiven. And even though it's risky, and even though I don't understand, and even though I've got questions, I want to commit my life to you tonight. And I want to begin to follow you. And I want to begin to get my feet wet. And then for others of us, perhaps we've known Jesus many years. But there's one particular thing that, as I've been speaking tonight, God, as it were, has put his spotlight on an issue or a subject or a person or a hope or a relationship. 
and we know what it is you're asking us to do. And Father, for us who are in that position, even though it feels risky, even though it feels vulnerable, even though it may not make much sense to other people, because we hear your voice calling out to us tonight, we say tonight that we're willing to take that first step. We're willing to make that first move. We're willing to get our feet wet again and to do what it is you're asking us to do. And Lord, as we take those first steps, then we're asking for you to do something miraculous in our lives that might not be something as dramatic as the passing of the Red Sea, but to us, we will know that it's only you. Only you could bring about that change of heart. Only you could bring about the healing in that relationship. Only you could bring about that job offer. Only you could bring about that change of how we're feeling and thinking. So, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit that we might sense and feel your life moving in our lives. That we might do the things that you're calling us to do and live the lives that you're calling us to live. In Jesus' name.